Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. The following podcast contains explicit language. Watts is, an, is a congested pricer. I'm A, I'm congested. And B, interested in prices and cities. Hello, and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for April 4th, 2019. The He's a Natural Toucher edition. David Plotz of Atlas Obscura here in the Slate DC studio. Joining me, of course, my co-hosts from CBS HQ in New York. CBS This Morning's John Dickerson. Hello, John. Hello, David. And from the campus of Yale University, where she is a professor of some sort. You're not really a professor. You're something at Yale. No, I am not a professor. Let's make that clear. She's not a professor. The real professors around here do not like it. When we not, mix that up, <laughs> we have not a professor at Yale Law School, but a staff writer. They at the let New York me Times teach magazine. a class, which is really nice of them. They add, every year they approve it, at least so far. But She's I am a not teacher, a professor. A teacher at Yale Law School. <laughs> there's and actually, there's, I really a joke that I think is really true that the long, the more words you have after your name at a university, the mm, less yes. important you are. So I have like three different titles, all signifying that I have no status. <laughs> Right. Whereas if you're just professor, that means, whoa, you're exactly. the big time, big time professor. That's a good. Point. Or you have a name chair. That's some more words. But um, yes. No. Could you ever be put in the condition of being adjunct? I am. I am the, the definition of adjunct. I am an adjunct okay. lecturer every time they approve me to lecture. I do have a cool title. The rest of the time, I am the Truman Capote Fellow for Creative Writing and Law. But that is not the same as being a professor. But do you make stuff up like Truman Capote? <laughs> no, I do not, David Plotz. <laughs> Please do not get even near me with that thought that is polluting. I, that's a terrible name to have. He's, he's, woof. Anyway, we'll talk about that later. Anyway, that's Emily Bazelon, of course. On this week's show, should Joe Biden be punished for his handsiness? Then a whistleblower's accusation that the Trump White House is approving security clearances for people who should be denied them, plus the general scandal-ridden White House, the tax returns, the new murmurings about what was really in the Mueller report. We'll talk about the whole White House scandal um, spectrum today. And then Brexit, oh my goodness, the Washington Post brilliant and Applebaum will attempt to shine light where there is nothing but darkness. She will attempt to explain what on God's green earth is going on with Brexit. Plus, of course, we'll have cocktail chatter. And a reminder that next Friday on April 12th, we will be in Charlottesville, Virginia, for a live show as part of the Tom Tom Festival. We're really excited for the show. It's going to be delightful. Jamel Bowie is going to join us as a special guest. And we've never done a show in Charlottesville, so it'll be it'll be truly fun. So please get tickets and information at slate.com slash live. Also, what that Charlottesville show means, we're taping on a Friday. It means that our GabFest is going to come out on Saturday next week. So there will not be a regular show in the feed on Thursday. Instead, you'll get that show on Saturday after we do our live show in Charlottesville on Friday. The non-existent presidential candidacy of Joe Biden 
Diamond Joe Biden, the former vice president, is in serious trouble. But why is it in serious trouble? Is it in, seri- is it in serious trouble, this non-presidential campaign, because he's the wrong guy at the wrong time for the Democratic Party? Or is it in serious trouble because of these allegations of excessive handsiness, handsiness and lipsiness, I suppose, from several women that Biden kissed and touched in ways that made them feel uncomfortable. They've come forward and discussed why it made them feel uncomfortable and how they thought his behavior was off the mark. Um, So, Emily, Biden calls himself, or he's been called, a tactile politician. What does that mean? Is that okay to be a tactile politician? Oh, I'm so and, torn and is about it this. An ox- and is it a redundancy? Huh? Why do you think it's a redundancy, John? Or are you making a because a joke in that politics? I just didn't get? No, well, because in politics, I mean, we'll get to the generational piece of this in a moment. But think about the things you use to associate and uh, political behavior: backslapping, right? Glad handing, kissing babies. There is a physicality to. Politics, you know, John, the Johnson treatment, Um, any politician, Biden is an extreme version of this because of his he's but they politicians often drape themselves over you, whether it be man or woman. Now, I'm not I'm just saying this is a different context than other kinds of context. And that's why I said, you know, that it might be redundant, because for a long time, politics, you know, the rope line, you, you are literally there to physically touch and embrace and hug and do all these other things with voters. Um, and, and so the, the venue in which you have these physical contacts is a weird venue. What other venue do you get to grab random babies and kiss them? That's weird. So it's already a weird venue is all my only point. Yeah, that's a totally good point. And then I think the lines get even blurrier. I think that Biden's touchiness, as far as we can tell, seems to be well-intended. And yet to some people, overly intimate. I thought Nancy Pelosi put it well when she said that Biden has to understand that in the world we're in now, people's space is important to them. And what's important is how they receive it and not necessarily how you intended it. So I think Biden seems to be using physicality to get close to people, sometimes to reassure them, to signify intimacy. And I think it also matters that because he has personal family tragedy in his own history, that sometimes people want that kind of closeness from him. But he Mm -hmm. also doesn't seem to have a really good barometer for when to back off. He seems to assume that it's welcome. And this is tricky, right? The whole idea of unwanted contact and touch signifies that the person who's offering it can pick up a signal of what's wanted or unwanted. And some people, and I would say especially some men, don't seem to be terribly good at receiving those signals. So that seems to help explain to me what's happening here. This is a really hard issue because I, I, as someone who's been a boss, a male boss and an old male boss for many years, I recognize how, you know, how tricky it is to engage physically with colleagues or engage physically with people who are, who, especially women who you're, you have a professional relationship with it. And it's, it's fraught and it's awkward. And like, there's there, it's hard to handle it in ways that are, that don't feel weird. I'm a kind of tactile person myself and my own instinct. I have to suppress my own instincts to be tactile a lot of the time. But it is also true. It is absolutely true that humans are touch deprived generally. Being touched is nice. 
being kissed is nice. Having someone put their hands on you in an affectionate way with love and affection and warmth is nice. And it's very sad to me that we feel the need to rein it in. And it's really sad to me to think to say that to, – to think that we live in a world where really the reception – the reception trumps the, the intent. Mm. Because I, I think that it, you can never know how people are – people are going to feel uncomfortable if you say a word to them in the wrong way, if you look at them funny. Like people get – become uncomfortable. And they, you cannot read it. You can't know it. And I think really what matters is what you intend when you do it. And it's clear looking at Joe Biden – and it's not – this is not true of all men. And it's certainly like one of the, the problems is that there are, so, there are men who, who offer warmth and physical affection and then are using it as a door, as a foot in the door to get to something else. And that, that's what's complicated things and made things so ugly. But the fact is with there's ne- as far as I can tell with Biden there's never been any accusation of anything beyond it that he's offering this as as kind of true warmth and affection and 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 I'm not you know again I'm not I'm not saying like that these women didn't feel uncomfortable they obviously did and if they felt so uncomfortable they felt the need to come forward and speak out and like it really meant something to them but it just it 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 makes me unhappy that we we have to live in a world where touch we we circumscribe touch still further where somebody who is doing something which which for most of us would be felt as warm and nice and good can't do it anymore that's a bummer so i got to say i i feel like you're universalizing the idea that being touched and being kissed is nice um, and that most of us will welcome it. I don't experience the world that way. I love it when people I, I feel warmth and affection to touch and kiss me in appropriate ways. Yes, that can be a lovely thing. But I have lots of feelings, and I think a lot of people do. I'm going to say a lot of women do, that Definitely. men yeah. touch me in ways that are unwelcome, and I wish they would back the fuck off, and they don't. And I, like, my whole life have been experiencing that and finding that quite unwelcome. Um, I can hear, like, the right. emotion rising in my voice because I can think now, of all you, the times that has happened you, to me. And so I feel like we yeah. got to make some room for that in all of this. No, you're, that's a totally fair point. I think it's like – sorry, John. I, I think you're you're right, Emily. That's a really well-taken point. It's very different for me as a man, a big – I'm a big person also. Like it's very different for me to be able to say that than it is for you as a woman who I'm sure has been on the receiving end of so much stuff that is unwelcome and 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 – and yeah, I, that's a that's a really fair point. I, I guess I, that's a, I, I go back to uh, yeah. That's a that's so let me totally jump, fair point. Let me jump Good in point. while you're with what has just happened in this conversation is you two have voiced strong different opinions, and you found the like delicate line here. You figured out where the line here is. David expressed a uh, you know. What is a true thing? And it's also partially why people reach over in rope lines. It's why they line up at the State of the Union so they can touch the president. There is some tactile portion of politics. The problem is these these moments are fraught for the reasons you describe, Emily. And it's being talked about in an arena that's weird, as I've already said, because it's politics. And that's further weirded because it's a political campaign. And so people are full of motives that have nothing to do with the 
the um, issue at hand. People are talking about this in part to, to raise the idea that Joe Biden is from a different generation, which gets at the fact that he's old and his time has passed. Um, and so there are lots of other motivations for talking about this. And yet, on the other hand, the reason we're talking about this is not just because it's about politics, but because we're going through this extraordinary moment in American life where lots of rules are being rewritten. What Emily just so beautifully articulated is able to not only be said, but heard anew. Um, and the way David just heard it a new seconds ago. And so you want to take advantage of these moments. But, you know, the political arena is this kind of incredibly clumsy place um, in which to have that conversation. The only final point I would make is, and yet on the other hand, undoubtedly we're having some share of these conversations. Perhaps, you know, 95% of these conversations are in part a result to the fact that there has been a backlash based on the current president and his behavior, which has and, and his election, which caused, uh, I think, partially is an, in, you know, obviously Harvey Weinstein and lots of other stories, too. Um, anyway, I don't know what the summation point of all of that is, but um, that's my reaction. Well, I think it's a really good point, John, that there are so many forms of behavior that are like much more objectionable than Joe Biden's. Like Joe Biden is a very minor footnote in all of this reworking that we're doing. Um, And I should also say that I feel like it has helped me as a woman professionally not to overreact. Mm. Like, I recognize that sometimes there's like a fumbling and awkwardness to these professional or social encounters. And I basically try to give everybody the benefit of the doubt and not worry a whole lot if I don't think that as long as I think someone's basically well-intended, like I try to take it in that spirit, even if I don't in the moment really want it. But Mm -hmm. Emily, you just did put Joe Biden's behavior on a spectrum with which the far end is Harvey Weinstein, but it's, you did put it on that spectrum. So you didn't, in your view is he, his behavior was, was, you know, was not good. Even his behavior is not good. Right. It's not good. I mean, I I think that it is a good idea to be a little more sensitive than it seems like Biden is to how people are receiving your touch. Right. So but I, I do. I think this is like a big strike against Joe Biden. No, I don't. I care much more about the fact that if he is the Democratic nominee, we are going to be stuck relitigating his stances in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. And I'm (laughs) really exercised about the fact that when he was asked about Anita Hill and that hearing, the Clarence Thomas hearings um, this week, he said, oh, I wish I could have done something to help her when in fact he was chairing the committee. That infuriates me. So- I, I want to harken back to there was this weird moment maybe 30 years ago when Queen Elizabeth came to Washington, D.C. And there she was meeting citizens of Washington, D.C. And I may be butchering the story slightly, but it's stuck in my head. And there was a she was meeting a kind of uh, an older woman, African-American woman. And the, the typical thing is to curtsy. And this woman hugged the queen. And at that moment, people there was this there was this kind of. I think there was a story in the Washington Post style section about this woman who hugged the queen. There's a profile of her. And it was this scene as like as this absolutely shocking moment, but also somehow embodying the great warmth and, and openness of America. And and so and I always took it as such a wonderful story is like, yeah, that would be I wish I would have the guts to hug the queen if I met the queen. Um, 
No, actually, I wouldn't want to hug the queen. But, but you know, if there were a person <laughs> like the queen, a person who occupied this, you know, like a, that mental space for me, if I met LeBron James, I would hope I would have the guts right. to hug LeBron Bring James. Me- Hey, bring this but, one home, buddy. Where are you going with this? I know, well, exactly. no, but David's like but it, lost. Yeah, but, I'm not lost. No, I'm just, I'm just saying that 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 it's. I fear that in the in, in the expression of the the wonderful point you just made back at me, Emily, and in the in the general kind of concern about the the predations of men, which are many ma- manifold and and seemingly everywhere, and we seem capable as a as a gender of taking the most innocent and kind and nice um, interactions and turn it and sexualizing them and making women feel bad. That we are going to lose the the true benefits of human connection and of touch. And I, I guess I would push back at you, Emily, that I I do think that in general humans are under touched and and that we would all be better if we if we had a little more skin against skin. And and I think Joe Biden clearly feels that way and. And well, and he's he's miscalibrated it, but I I'd hate for the reaction to be every interaction is a handshake. But uh, well, first of all, I am naked right now, so just towards David's uh, <laughs> touch. <laughs> I'm kidding. So, but but I think that actually both both I think both of you are. I mean, because when I was thinking about this, I thought you know I had my predictable reaction, which is. We, you know, what does this have to do with the job that he's auditioning for? Um, the, the points that Emily raised uh, are much more germane to um, a politician's ability to handle the kinds of issues that affect women in particular. Um, and also, by the way, uh, when, when Emily, when she said, I, mentioned him saying, I wish I could have done something. Well, it seems to me it's a key quality of a president to take insoluble moments at which it seems like you have no options and find options. That's why we elevate people who are supposedly particular and special to the office because they have that talent. So that to me is what this, you know, that's what campaigns should be about. So this seemed to me um, like an important issue, but not germane to the job that he's doing. However, it seems to me, uh, and so I was thinking, gosh, are we going kind of overboard on this the way we go overboard on everything? But I do think that the, the conversation I've heard the two of you have is actually quite useful and useful for the purposes of more clearly defining the lines and preserving what you say, David, which is to say that, that but what, what Joe Biden has done in the conversation it has raised is quite different than all the other people who have been a part of this story for the last many months. And yet it's not nothing, as Emily described. So this is like creating a new category. We're going to have this happen again and being able to quickly classify these incidents so that they both don't get minimized, but then also not every person who has one of these issues becomes Harvey Weinstein. I think that's actually quite useful for the public conversation here, which is, um, you know, obviously very complicated and and emotional. Okay, Emily, uh, we didn't even get to dig into all the your excellent points you you flicked at around uh, Biden's politics and how how problematic he might be as a nominee for political reasons rather than his handsiness reasons. But what did you make of his, uh, his non, not an apology, but his, his sort of apologetic statement that he made on some social platform yesterday where he vowed to be mindful and he was acknowledged that changes in how people perceive personal space and he, he needed to catch up with that. I thought that was fine. I don't know why he didn't just say sorry to people he seems to have troubled. Just seems like 
the normal thing to do. But I thought it was good for him to acknowledge that his style may be going out of date. And we can reserve a longer policy discussion about Joe Biden for the moment that he actually enters the race, if indeed that happens. Slate Plus members, you get bonus segments on the GabFest and other Slate podcasts. And today, you're going to get a congestion pricing in New York Slate Plus segment. We're going to charge you an extra $25 to hear that segment. No, we're not going to do that. But if you are going into Manhattan to hear it, we're going to charge you an extra $25. We're not going to do that either. Anyway, we're going to talk about congestion pricing and whether that's going to save Manhattan. Go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a Slate Plus member today. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Brexit. It is practically impossible to follow, in part because most uh, British journalists seem to be drunk drunk in a stupor at a pub, disbelieving that this is still continues, disbelieving that that after all these months and years, we are where we are. Will it ever end? We are joined to clarify and elucidate by Anne Applebaum, the Pulitzer Prize winning columnist for the Washington Post. And you are not in England. You've escaped, you've escaped Britain so that you can observe from a distance. But um, will it ever end? That's the first question. <laughs> Um, it will end and it, it will end, it might end very rapidly. Um, the way the law works, um, Britain signed up to something called Article 50 and enacted something called Article 50 two years ago, which gave them two years to negotiate an exit from the European Union. As you might be aware, they have failed to come up with an exit plan that everybody agrees on, but that does that doesn't negate Article 50. And it was supposed to end on March 29th. That was the that was Brexit day. Um, they've got an extension right now until April 12th, which is just a few days from now. Um, and it might end then. So it may be over by next week. But there is now a move in the House of Commons to get a further extension because there isn't a plan to leave. There isn't an agreement. There isn't any idea what the customs arrangements and trade arrangements will be with Europe the day after Brexit. So that's where we are. I hope that's not too confusing. Does Article 50 get extended automatically if Britain asks for it? My understanding right. is no. No, it does not. So so what's happened is they 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 basically they set a kind of time bomb, right? And it, and it's been ticking for 2 years, right? It's up to the EU to allow them to extend it. Um and the EU has granted them one extension. I mean one of the one of the great ironies of this of course is that the great slogan in the in the Brexit referendum campaign was "Take back control," meaning Britain will take back control of everything. Um, and one of the effects of it is that Britain has ceded control, not just of this process, but of lots of other things, to Europe. And now we have the spectacle of you know Emmanuel Macron musing about whether maybe he would like Britain to crash out next week, and Angela Merkel decided, thinking, well, maybe she wouldn't. And there's a sort of argument going on in Europe about whether what should happen. And it really is Europe that will decide whether or not Britain gets this extension. And eight days away, I cannot tell you what the decision will be because they're still arguing about it. There's a meeting on April the 10th 
Um, and at that meeting, they'll make a decision about the about the extension and, and hasn't been decided yet. And do, do other countries in Europe ho- wish for a, a, a crack up in, in uh, the UK because they want it to have a hot stove moment for other people who think that these quick fix nationalist things are really wonderful? And if everything falls apart in Britain, then they'll be able to say, see, you think the solutions are easy, but look at the disaster of the of Brexit. So that's a really interesting question. Actually, up until now, most other Europeans have not said that. And there's, for kind of practical reasons, you know, lots of people have trade with the UK and, you know, there are German car companies that send parts back and forth across the channel, you know, four times before the car is actually built or even more than that. Um, there are, you know, there are all kinds of you know, medical agreements. The UK makes a lot of pharmaceuticals. There are lots of medicines that get made or tested in the UK. And so, so there are lots of reasons why many, particularly the biggest countries, which have the biggest trade with Britain, Germany, France, Netherlands, um, Italy, really don't want to crack up because they want trade to continue. They don't want there to be, because you understand the effect of Brexit would be this slamming down of customs duties at the borders yeah. and customs checks. Because right now, Britain has a trading relationship with France like, you know, Texas with Arkansas. I mean, you just, it's, it's, there's no difference. You just move stuff back and forth and no one pays any attention to it. And this would change that very rapidly and quickly if there's, if there was crashing out. So lots of people for, you know, pragmatic, sensible reasons don't want that to happen. And they've been work, you know, they've been working to make sure it doesn't happen. And, but you are right. There is now a strain of thinking. I mean, I had a French friend write to me a couple of days ago, you know, I've now been converted to this idea that Britain should crash out just because if they don't, you know, they'll stay in the EU, they'll be toxic, they'll be a huge problem. And yes, I think there is an idea that some people have that it would be a kind of lesson. And in a way, it would be a lesson for Americans too. You know, what happens when a country that has been integrated into the, you know, liberal world economic order suddenly crashes out and suddenly loses all of its trade deals and suddenly isn't part of any treaties? What's the effect of that? And it would be, um, you know, she's and my friend said, well, you know, look, it would be hard on a lot of people, but it's not war. You know, it's not a it's not an epidemic. You know, everybody would live through it. So, so there is a kind of instinct now. Maybe we do want them out. And there are a lot of people who, who certainly don't want them being part of the next European Parliament. They don't want them, you know, being part of European Council meetings bec- precisely because of this. You know, if it's an if it's a country with an unstable relationship with Europe, if it's not really committed to Europe, then yeah, they could be a huge it could be a huge problem. And one thing I keep thinking about is the way in which watching Britain from afar right now, this seems like such an enormous folly and an example of this kind of nihilistic politics tied to um nationalism that we're seeing in so many places and that you've studied and written about. And I wonder, you know, when you take a step back, especially when you're thinking of this idea of teaching a lesson and other countries perhaps um, also learning from that lesson, if you feel like there's this larger phenomenon here in which voters are rejecting everything, but they can't figure out a real vision for moving forward other than just saying no, no, no. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I don't think that the I don't think it was originally so much nihilistic, but it had sort of become that now. But it's true that the referendum campaign was something kind of new, almost in post-war politics, in that it was a campaign that 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 favored, as you say, nationalist ideology above economics. Okay, it might hurt to leave Europe, but we don't care. We can take a 
2% drop in production or whatever we think it's going to be or a drop in GDP. A lot of politics, uh, you know, up until very recently was always about economics. You know, everybody came to office promising to make people more prosperous. You know, we're going to run the country better. It's going to be more efficient. We're going to build more roads, whatever. It was always about material goods. And this was a campaign that was about something else. You know, the consequence of that is, I mean, in a way it's already happened. You know, Britain has already, you know, it's it's not been dramatic. It's not been a kind of crash, you know, and riots in the streets, but there has been, um, British companies have done less well. The British pound is down. The stock market is lower than it would be. You know, lots of, lots of investment is lower than it would be. You know, you've seen a kind of slow decline already. Um, and yet there's still a big part of the Tory party in particular, which was traditionally the party of, you know, good economics and good economic management, um, which doesn't mind. I mean, and the British political system has had a really good, you know, run for almost a thousand years. Like, but yes. just it's, it's done very well. You know, I, th- I assume you know Boris Johnson and Jacob Rees-Mogg and the, these the folks who are some of the faces of of Brexit. What has caused this group of politicians to behave so disastrously? Is it is it pure selfish opportunism? Has something gone wrong in in British politics? I mean, what 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 happened? There is something that specifically went wrong with the Tory party. I do know some of them and have known them for a long time. Boris Johnson and Michael Gove are both journalists, um, or were journalists before they were politicians, and I used to work as a British journalist, so knew them in that then. Um, there's sort of two different strands. There's the sort of Michael Gove strand, which is mostly based on ignorance about Europe. You know, there was a tabloid culture in Britain of blaming that everything that went wrong, you could blame on Europe, you know, whatever economics were going wrong, whatever regulation you didn't like, you could claim that it came from Europe. And there was a lot of ignorance about how Europe actually worked, how much influence the UK really had in it, which was enormous, um, how the treaties worked, and a lot of mythology that got pumped out, particularly by the right-wing tabloids, which is why this particularly infected the Tory party. Um, and people bought it. I mean, they didn't know that much about it. They, they became very ignorant of it. They became very dismissive of it. They believe this mythology about EU bureaucrats being boring or whatever, and they, and they, and they just didn't know. And when, and there were, and that was one of the reasons why both the political class and the voters so easily bought these really dishonest lies in the Brexit campaign. And there were, you know, we'll make three hundred fifty million pounds a week just by leaving, which was manifestly not true. I mean, I think, you know, all kinds of ideas about freedom and so on that were, you know, r- literally ridiculous. Um, but, you know, a constant diet of anti-EU stories, articles, arguments um, had been coming out. And a, lot of, and a lot of politicians believe that, too. And the second piece of it is that, you know, like any big political break, there, there is a suddenly a kind of group of political entrepreneurs saw a place they could jump in and make careers in a way they hadn't before. And one of them is Jacob Rees-Mogg and one of them is Boris Johnson, who I think um, – was in, in, I actually had a conversation with him three or four years ago about the possibility of Britain leaving the EU. And he said, oh, of course, it's ridiculous. We'll never leave. It's not a good idea to leave. You know, business doesn't want it. Financial sector doesn't want it. You know, it'll never happen. So, and I remember that very distinctly. Um, and then he made an opportunistic decision to be part of the, the campaign, the, the, the Brexit referendum campaign, I think because he thought it would lose, but he thought it would somehow situate him well in the party. And there are a lot of people who've made decisions like that. I mean, there are a lot of, I mean, Jacob Rees-Mogg is somebody who would not be such a prominent person if it wasn't for this, suddenly saw an opportunity. In that sense, it's also a little bit like 
Trump and Trumpism, that lots of people who wouldn't be in politics or wouldn't be, certainly wouldn't be in the administration, they wouldn't be in Washington, they would be disqualified for various reasons, you know, from Jared Kushner on down, have made careers because suddenly there's this new set of rules and, you know, experience doesn't matter and having a security clearance doesn't matter and all the stuff that we used to think you needed to have to be high, you know, a high ranking person in a White House administration don't matter. And that suddenly creates opportunities for people who were unqualified. And something like that, you could say, has happened. So in building on that and your and your um, understanding of history, there are in, in the states and tell me if this doesn't work um, for England. But in the states, there are those there are people who defend Trump and his, and the people who've come in with him by saying they had some central insight. And they are like other either revolutionaries or big change agents who have, um, you know, come into their moment and they've grabbed their moment. And just by occupying the current space they're in um, speaks to some talent they have, which is durable. In other words, they're not just opportunists. And there are others who would say, no, people who seize their moment often have done it after a lifetime of careful thinking about it and application of their ideas in the in a kind of marketplace of ideas, uh, and that when they have their moment, they it's built on something more durable. Um, a is that it, it, what, what do you think of that with respect to the this set of politicians? So, I mean, you, ha- I mean, wh- however you look at this, I mean, um, whether you're pro Brexit or anti Brexit, the 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 political decisions that have been taken since the referendum have been pretty catastrophic. So, you know, <laughs> you know, who how, doesn't really, I mean, and I lo- I know people who are pro Brexit who would say the same. Um, I mean, the main culprit since, you know, for the last two years is Theresa May, the prime minister who has really just made one terrible decision after the next. Um, but nobody else in her party has offered anything better. Um, one, and one of the problems, I think, was that they lied so much during the referendum campaign and so many that people expected there were, you know, they expected it to be true. There would be an easy negotiation. Britain would hold all the cards. The EU would do whatever we want. And they believed these mythologies. Oh, the German car companies would never let anything bad happen. They wouldn't, you know. And as it's turned out, they're really big trade-offs. You know, you might you have to choose, you know, do you want a better economic relationship and more sovereignty or vice versa? You know, what do you want to lose? You know, because you're going to lose something, however, whatever decision you take. And people have not wanted to make the trade-offs and they've, you know, objected to the idea that there are any trade-offs. And, you know, Boris Johnson keeps walking around saying, why aren't people more positive and why don't they say anything optimistic? And Brexit is great, you know, and he, he wants to maintain that line, even though there's no backup to it. So, I mean, they have, you know, the kind of, total crash of the Tory right is something that, you know, has been almost, you know, um, kind of awe inspiring. I mean, who knew they were that ignorant? You know, who knew they had no idea how Europe worked, you know, you know, for a whole Tory leadership group for a whole generation, um, to have, to have kind of estimated everything that wrong and misunderstood the situation this badly, um, is really pretty impressive. (laughs) Is there anyone who's acquitted themselves well, Anne? Is there any is there any person or group that has acquitted themselves decently during this whole process? I mean, there are lots of people who have tried to, um, you know, given the leadership, you know, overcome the leadership crisis. Um, and there are lots of people who've, you know, there were, I mean, lots of people resigned from Theresa May's cabinet when they realized things were going wrong. But all kinds of people have behaved honorably. Um, but it's just been very hard to overcome the, you know, the kind of um, 
you know, the sort of dead hand of Theresa May and of Jeremy Corbyn on the steering wheel on both sides, you know, so the, the very good people are there. They're, you know, they're really good people in the Labour Party as well and good, you know, good Scottish nationalist MPs as well. But they kind of, none of them have been able to force through and, and you know, and make any big changes, at least not so far. So, Anne, if you were in closing here, if you were a betting person, what what would you bet on the situation? Being what can in six we look months, forward to? What, what next impressive act? God, you know, I've made, you know, I've done really well. I'm not predicting anything with Brexit because, I mean, there, you know, there are really two options right now. One option is that they crash out on April the 12th and customs barriers go up and we have queues at Dover and so on. You know, that's and that's very that's about I'd say that's 50 percent. And then the other 50 percent is there's a very long delay, like a two year delay um, while they, you know, batter something out and claw one of their eyes out that, you know, they have probably another referendum, maybe a general election. I'd say, you know, it will go one way or the other. Um, Maybe for our own sanity, we should hope for them to crash out just because at least then the story's over. Although, you know, I don't want to be too frivolous. (laughs) Ann Applebaum is a columnist for the Washington Post and an occasional GabFest guest. And thanks for joining us. Come back anytime, especially to talk not about Brexit. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Hey, Slate listeners. I'm Christina Cotarucci, the host of Slow Burn, Gaze Against Briggs. I want to tell you about a special event we're doing at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York City on June 13th. To celebrate this new season of Slow Burn and Pride Month, we're hosting an exclusive live taping of the show with special guests, including civil rights activist and Black Lives Matter organizer DeRay McKesson, comedian and singer Esther Fallick, Eric Marcus, the host of Making Gay History, and Sam Fader, director of the Netflix documentary Disclosure, about the depiction of trans people in film and television. We'll dive deeper into this season and talk about the lasting impact of the Briggs Initiative and the continued fight over LGBTQ rights in schools. It'll be the perfect way to celebrate Pride Month this June with LGBTQ stories and voices across generations. Again, that's June 13th at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York. You can get tickets now at TribecaFilm.com slash slowburn. Hope to see you there. There's a panoply of scandal in the White House. Always a panoply of scandal in this White House. But there's a whole bunch of different things going on. We thought we were just going to talk about security clearances, but then we realized, whoa, the House, it looks like it's going to demand six years of President Trump's tax returns. That's going to cause uh, it's going to cause a furor. And there is murmurings coming out of the Mueller investigation coming clearly from people who worked on the Mueller investigation that the characterization of Mueller's report by Attorney General Barr is not quite accurate, that there was a lot more discussion of, obstru- of obstruction and and uh, other misdeeds than Barr seems to have acknowledged in his letter to, to uh, in his letter summarizing the report. And then also, we're, of course, going to talk about the, the news of a White House whistleblower, Tricia Newbold, who is a bureaucrat working in security clearances for the White House, testified before the House at the request of Democrats this past week. That again and again and again, White House officials, including apparently the president, approved security clearances for 25 people, including senior advisors who had disqualifying information uncovered about them in the course of the investigations into them, including drug use, financial problems, criminal conduct. So, John, is the uh, 
every week there's there's 50 of these stories. So I guess there's nothing really new to say here or new, new here. But um, oh, don't what do be you so make... hand wavy. Come okay, on. okay. Sorry. Taking this stuff seriously. You're right. No, yeah, but go. I, but but in I'm just in, trying in to. Okay, to... no, you're. No, don't be fair to me. Emily's right. I'm just trying to figure out like what is it what is it that what is it that's important about particularly about the security yes. clearance story, if anything. Yeah. 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 So that's the that's the right thing. Which is yeah, we can't obviously you can't go into recline really every time the president lies and dissembles and all of that. I think it's important to kind of stand up each time. Um leaving aside the sort of the question, does this hurt him? Will it hurt him? All that question. What's serious and important about this? I think the clearance thing is, um, for me, it's interesting. Well, A, there are the specifics of the case. So you have the president overruling a security issue and, you know, measure it against how freaked out people got about the lapses in security regularities that, that Hillary Clinton participated in when she was at the uh, secretary of state. And, you know, this would seem to be um, quite severe. This is important. This is about national security. So it's not a kind of loose norm. It's also, for me, a story and a clash between um, somebody who has worked for four administrations, who is the part of the permanent, you know, what is derisively often called the bureaucracy, um, but are basically public servants. And Trisha Newbold was doing you know, exactly what she is there to do. And the reason she's there to do this, and I'll just now surf over to to Michael Lewis, who wrote a great book about this, which is called The Fifth Risk. And it's about basically what happens when you downgrade and diminish um, and try and get around the people who are there who have expertise and who know the way things are supposed to work um, uh, for good reason, because like important stuff is in their care and you can't just bring in political appointees with each new administration. And so this kind of, um, I want to get back to that later, but my answer has gone on too, uh, too long. But I think what's important about this is, is this clash between, um, the people who are, uh, who have expertise and are supposed to keep us safe and the impulses of the, um, the chief executive. Emily, I, so clearly the professionals are, are perturbed. Is there is there a defense of what's going on that, man, we overclassify everything, the, the, the kind of uh, oppressiveness of the national security state should be pushed back against? And yeah, maybe the Trump folks are playing fast and loose. But look, you know, John Bolton's been a senior advisor in previous Republican administrations. He is he uh, he sh- he needs a security clearance. He's he's earned it before. Jared and Ivanka are the president's closest relatives. They, of course, he's going to trust them. Of course, it's reasonable for them to have a security clearance. Let's let's not get too worked up over something uh, just because the the national security honeybees are are so agitated about it. Yeah, that's the defense that this is an unreasonable bureaucracy as opposed to civil servants dutifully and legitimately doing their job. Can we turn to another question related to this, which is what is the role of Congress here in oversight? Yes. And this is broader because this is going to be this ongoing huge umbrella question, right, about all these documents requests. It's going to pertain to um, the House trying to get a look at Trump's tax returns. It's going to pertain to what we ever find out about the Mueller investigation, et cetera, et cetera. And the Trump White House counsel is now taking a very aggressive, totally unsurprising position, which is essentially that Congress has no oversight role here, that 
they're not actually invoking executive privilege, at least not yet. They're just saying like, nope, we're not handing anything over. Sorry, go away, goodbye. And effectively challenging the House to ramp up the pressure. And this is going to be tough sledding. Like the House has some tools, but it's not really clear if you have an um, executive branch that's committed to secrecy, whether the House tools are really going to have any teeth to them. I mean, the House can issue, they can issue subpoenas. They can, I suppose, hold someone in contempt of the House. But they can go to court and presumably the Democrats will do those things. But this is going to, I assume, take a long time to play out. And it's alarming in terms of, you know, one of the themes of our show, the kind of separations of powers question that our increasingly imperial presidency raises. This is part of that conversation. And um, I was reading this really good piece in Lawfare by Margot Taylor, and she went back to the George W. Bush administration and pointed out that when that administration was facing requests for a lot of documents pertaining to um, Bush's selection of new U.S. attorneys and this question of whether there had been some mishugas and picking them um, related to political influence, the George W. Bush White House turned over a lot of stuff. And even though it wasn't everything that um, Congress wanted, it did not seem to be politically advantageous to that White House to be totally obstructionist. Um this White House is handling things really differently. I see the political payoff for Trump. This is like part of his appeal to his base, but that it is still concerning from the point of view of this eroding role of Congress. Yeah. Let me just pile onto that, Emily, that every uh, one of our listeners should go read that Margaret Taylor piece. It is very unsettling. The idea that the White House is stonewalling, that they are ignoring, they did they, the different you know, stations along the way, they totally ignored requests for years. Then they answered with non-germane material or answered by, they gave answers which basically said, no, you don't have any right to look at this. And what's so concerning to me is that they, that almost all the possible outcomes here are bad. So one outcome is Congress kind of folds and gives up on its oversight authority. It's like, well, we can't do anything. And they throw up their hands and they give up. That's bad. That's number one. Number two is Congress legally challenges this, like, but with subpoenas and, and they go to the court and they ultimately end up at the Supreme Court demanding certain things. And the Supreme Court capitulates to this imperial presidency and, and says, no, White House, you don't have to supply this information. It is all protected by executive privilege, even though we all know that it really shouldn't be. The or third is the Supreme Court refuses to decide the question under what's called political question doctrine. Sorry, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, okay. There's another one. It could Good punt. One. Or they go to, to they go to the court and they win, and the Supreme Court says, "Yeah, you have to supply this material," and they still don't. And the White House just is like, "Nah, we're not going to do it," or they resist and yeah. slow walk it, and they still don't do it. Yeah, they, they're this White House. You can easily see them refusing to comply with legitimate court orders. I mean, they've done it before. There've been legitimate court orders, and they've basically been like, "Yeah, we'll we'll just finagle around it." So it's very. It's very hard to see how any of this ends well when you have a when you have a dishonest bad actor in one of the branches. Sorry, John. Go ahead. It's amazing. This is where we get into the the kind of norms and the traditional political pressures that usually operated that don't anymore. I remember right. it was maybe a year ago I was on Colbert and and Stephen said, um, you know, what happens if the um, you know if they uh, if Mueller tries to in interview the president, you know, what's he going to do? And and I said he'll just say no, I'm not going to do it. I'm the president. And lots of people said no, no, he has to because for this reason and for that reason, 
with this White House and and this president, the he has to is totally up for grabs. Um, even if there are even if there are laws on the book, books and what what pushed them to cooperate in the past? Well, the Cold War, <laughs> partially. Um, the belief in norms that the co-equal branch of government had some role to play. You needed the co-equal branch, even if it was a majority by the other party, to get stuff done because you would ultimately – let's give let's take the totally self-interested view of this – because you ultimately would be judged by the voters by what you got done and you wanted to get some stuff done so you could get reelected. But now if you're being judged by your um, voters you care most about and maybe the voters who will determine the election, you are judged on your fights that you have with the other side, your ability to stonewall the other side, your ability to make fun of the other side at rallies and get everybody um, – excited and revved up, then your incentives are to have these big public fights. They're not to get things done for the purposes of them bragging about them at rallies so that people will go vote for you. So the incentives have turned away from cooperation, either for the purposes of getting something done or for the purposes of of keeping faith with the 230-year-old institution of a constitution where the founders would be um, prostrate from the series of epileptic fits that they would have watching this. Because when you read through their conversations over four months, you see how they keep coming back and adding tiny little grains of balance in the relationship between the judiciary, the legislative, and the executive. Always very nervous that their careful balance will get out of whack. And they keep coming back to all of these questions, even at the the last minute, because they worry if things get out of balance – it will inevitably, as sure as the sun rises, lead to, you know, tyranny and chaos. And so in the current situation in which things have gotten completely cattywampus, they w- I don't know, they wouldn't know what to do with themselves. I just want to add to that one thing, which is that if you do care about getting things done, you care about getting your appointments through, which the Senate controls and the Senate, of course, remains in Republican hands. So that is not actually fixing the separation of powers problem you were just um yeah. Brilliantly describing, John. Excellent, excellent point. I don't want to uh, leave without us talking quickly about taxes and also about the the latest rumblings about the Mueller report. But quick, on taxes, it does seem to me that it's the same issue as we have around security clearances around this lawfare article, which is that the uh, House Ways and Means Committee has now asked for six years of the president's taxes. The president asked the IRS commissioner to supply it under you know what appears to be a very clear law. They have the right to do that. They have the right to ask for this, and the IRS has to supply it. And it is it is absolutely clear that the president is going to fight this with every every red blood cell, white blood cell, lymphocyte, you know, <laughs> piece of bone, neuron that he has. He will fight this. And who the hell knows how it's going to end up? But it is it's it's a similar situation where where we're going to have a, a showdown between the branches and and under normal circumstances the the. Congress should be allowed to see these returns, and I know they're not going to be allowed to receive these returns, and we're going to end up somewhere else. But now, Mueller, the Mueller report. So, Emily, there's this discussion about whether whether the attorney general mischaracterized the report. There appears to be leaking out of Mueller's camp, suggesting that he's mischaracterized the report. Is this not the least surprising story in the entire world? Like, I feel like, of course, we were going to find out that – that's the four-page letter that Barr released was not the whole story. This is why we need to see the report. 
I I really want to reserve judgment about so much of this story until we get to see the report, which Barr is still promising us in some redacted form. Um, And let's hope it has the least possible redactions in it, i.e., like, two words are taken out. I know that's too much to ask for, but I really think it's going to cause a lot of trouble um, for trust in government if we don't get to see the whole thing. Anyway, um, what I do feel confused about right now is why the Mueller team didn't uh, do more to prevent exactly this from happening, which is that Barr, a political appointee, super skeptical about obstruction, all of that totally clear to Bob Mueller and everyone who worked for him, why they didn't do something more to make sure that Barr wouldn't be able to do exactly what he predictably did. Now, I realize that the underlying problem here are the regulations, which said that Mueller's report had to go to the attorney general and not to the public. I really fault those regulations. I think it was an overcorrection from the Star report. However, I just feel like, I don't know, do we really have to get left in this particular predicament? It just seems like it should have all been pretty easy to game out. And these people are such smart lawyers. Like, couldn't they have figured out a better posture to to leave their investigation in? Is I don't know. Am I just being unfair? Well, do we know what posture in which they left their investigation? So let's imagine, and for listeners, do please uh, heed these words. This is an act of imagination, not based on reporting, but it is based on the idea that there is some reporting in the papers, not my own, that says they created, they wrote these summaries. So... What if, Emily, what if the report, which we don't know anything about, was written with summaries ready to go uh, for the public and then written in a way that that makes it pretty easy to go through this process? We just don't know. We don't know. Yeah, whether, how, totally fair. How easy they, I guess they may have right. made it I, I, or they may have made it. They could have, you know, it's equally plausible. They could have made it super duper, incredibly complicated and impossible. But there is the reporting Thursday morning that that there are these similar summaries that were written and that they weren't followed. And that's the nature of these reported complaints is maybe a word I guess I would use from some of the Mueller team that say the report was more damaging than Barr has revealed, which to me sets up this situation for the attorney general. If it is so, let's stipulate for a moment that the report is much more damaging than the summary suggests. First of all, that would be natural because a summary is a summary. It's going to leave stuff out. But that seems to me to put the AG in a very difficult position because while it is true that summaries leave things out it has now become so political that any new detail from the actual report will seem very much more damaging than the actual summary just because of the nature of things and then also because the president has taken the summary and turned it into a 100 percent exoneration seems to me the political moment we have is that every new revelation will will not look like a 100% exoneration. And therefore, people will wonder, I think it's reasonable to conclude, gee, did the person who wrote the summary kind of whitewash what was actually in the Mueller report for the purposes of framing the narrative and so forth, which seems to me to put a serious heavy focus on the attorney general whenever he releases more Mueller material. But even in advance of that, if I am sitting there trying to weigh whether to put certain material out into the public, and I know the public will potentially evaluate that new information and say, gee, that's a lot more serious than you led us to believe in the summary. Would that cloud the way in which I evaluate that material that I'm going to determine whether it does or doesn't get out into the public? Those are some good questions. TBD. That's what I'd say about all of this. We'll find out. 
Let us go to Cocktail Chatter, chatter while you are waiting, awaiting the full Mueller report, while you are waiting for the president's full tax returns, while you wait and you get drunker and drunker. No, don't do that. While you wait and have a sip delicately on a cocktail, Emily Bazelon, what will you be chattering about? Okay. I have two new books that I um, want to deeply recommend. The first one, one is out now. one charged by Emily Bazelon? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's you New York done... Times. Uh, go read this book in April selection. Well, I thank you for pointing that out. And while you have done that, you guys have been so amazing and let me off the hook of my own marketing. But I am just going to say to readers, my book comes out next week. It would give me so much joy and happiness and relief of intense book anxiety if you would go and buy my book. Tweet me a picture of yourself with it. I will retweet it. Send it to me. I will sign it. I like will be filled with undying Wait, gratitude. For you are doing listeners. you are you are doing your book. I was just well, joking. I you couldn't even resist. One time. Okay, one time. All right. That was you it. Know. That was it. I was about to recommend two other people's books, I swear, but John gave me an opening. I had to take it. Okay. I just want to <laughs> let everyone know I really will appreciate it enormously. The two books I would like to recommend written by other people. One of them is by David McCraw, who is the absolute beloved, wonderful lawyer for the New York Times. Um he has this great book out called Truth in Our Times, which is filled with excellent times, stories, and lore, and more broadly speaking, is just an excellent primer on media law and First Amendment law and the big issues of our time. It it really has one of the best descriptions of the challenges of, in particular, you know, the interactions between social media and regular media and how that's like changing how we think about truth and, you know, this term fake news. One of the best descriptions and analyses I've read of that in the middle of the book. So such a good book if you're interested in those issues. And then my colleague at the Times Magazine, Taffy Broadstar Ackner, has this book coming out this summer called Fleischman is in Trouble. I predict it's going to be such a popular beach read. It (laughs) is this dissection of an Upper West Side marriage in New York that just has these delectable moments in it. There is particularly a scene in the middle um, involving a party with a few different married couples that I, it's just an unforgettably hilarious scene. So Fleischman is in Trouble by Taffy Broadsar Ackner. I think it comes out in June. I'm excited for that book. I'm pre-ordering it now. I want to hear what you guys think about that book. John the Dickerson, what is your chatter? My chatter uh, is about um, Michael Lewis and and, um, his new podcast, Against the Rules. I talked to him this week. He was uh, on our show, and then I talked to him at the CBS This Morning podcast. It connects with what we were talking about and his book, The Fifth Risk, the idea and where we are as a culture with respect to um, the people who... Uh, watch watch the rules, keep the rules. He writes about um, and has this fantastic look into NBA referees. I don't want to ruin it by trying to explain all of it, but it's it touches on many of the things that we talk about here all the time, which is what are the standards, who are the keepers of the standards, and how does popular opinion play a role in keeping the standards? You know, it's basically home team crowds want referees that aren't very good. They just want them not very good in their favor. If referees are really, really good, which is something people complain about when they complain about the refs, implicit in the complaint is they want the refs to be good. But good referees are impartial, which means that they're going to hurt the home team as much as the away team. 
and he talks about obviously who benefits from the rules, the superstars in the in the league who get a little bit, uh, you know, who, who are allowed to take a couple extra steps when they do the big dunk that makes everybody cheer. But if you're being rigorous, you call them on it, and they don't get to do the, you know, have their big moment. So anyway, it's and it goes into all the different ways in our lives that referees work. My chatter is about a fascinating interview in The Cut with Abigail Disney, who's a Disney heiress. And it's about what it is like to be rich beyond imagination. It's really interesting about why being rich is bad. But in particular, um, she talks about private jets. She has this screed against private jets, which I think is wonderful. I just want to read it. Her family was a Disney, had a bunch of Disney stock. And in the 80s, they suddenly became much, much richer than they'd been because Disney, under uh, Michael Eisner's leadership, I guess it was, uh, suddenly became much more valuable. And so the family just was enormously wealthy all of a sudden. And her dad bought a 737 for himself. Can you imagine having a 737? My goodness. In what ways did your dad change other than having a jet? Abigail Disney says... Actually, having a jet is a really big deal. If I were queen of the world, I would pass a law against private jets because they enable you to get around a certain reality. You don't have to go through an airport terminal. You don't have to interact. You don't have to be patient. You don't have to be uncomfortable. These are the things that remind us that we're human. It's not a small thing when you don't have to be patient or be around other people. It creates this notion that you're a little bit better than they are. And for the past 40 years, everything in American culture has been reinforcing that belief. We see job creators, entrepreneurs. Those are the people who make America great. So there are people walking around with substantial wealth who think they have it because they're better. It's fundamental to remember that you're just a member of the human race like everybody else. There's nothing about your money that makes you better than anyone else. If you don't know that and you have money, it's the road to hell no matter how much stuff you have around you. And I think it's really interesting that she connects that, that private jetness with that. And mm-hmm. it, is my, it is my kind of like – I've never ridden on a private jet. But my experience of pe- hearing people talk about it and knowing a few people who are private jet uh, habitués that it 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 creates a really a real sense of entitlement that is a wicked and disconnected sense of entitlement and I and I I thought it was a it's a, anyway the whole interview is fascinating about wealth and and the danger of wealth but that part in particular really struck me. Can I just say that I think that's a great recommendation? I'm going to pile on, even though I'm really overdoing my chatter this week. Um, David Roberts wrote this terrific piece for Vox called The Radical Moral Implications of Luck in Human Life that just does such a, like, rigorous job of dissecting um, the role luck plays and how resistant people who are very lucky and privileged feel to recognizing the role that luck and privilege has played in their enjoyment of their lives. I really recommend that. Sounds like it goes with what you just recommended. I also want to quickly log roll chat or something too, which is that Atlas Obscure has a wonderful new, it's a contest really. We, um, it's called first journey, go to atlasobscure.com slash first hyphen journey. And it's, we're giving away $15,000 to someone to take a meaningful trip. And it's somebody who hasn't maybe had the chance to take a really a big journey in their life. Not that you've never traveled, but somebody who hasn't. You, you've you, There's something that some really big way of exploring the world that you haven't had the chance to do because you don't have the means to do it. And we are going to help you do it. And so it's inspired by our own our own origin story, um, how our founders, Josh Four and Dylan Thuris, discovered with the world through travel and we want to help you do it. So if you are interested, please check it out. It's going to be wonderful. We also, of course, have listener chatter. Uh, you, there's an extraordinary raft of good ones this week. You've been tweeting them to us at at slate gab fest, just so many. So please keep that coming. 
And I want to call out one from at Lou Korn. And it's an award-winning book written by text, text by text by a refugee, Baruz Bouchani. Baruz Bouchani is an Iranian Kurd who fled Iran under pressure from the Revolutionary Guards when his newspaper that he was working for, his sort of Kurdish newspaper, was put under pressure. He fled, ended up on a boat trying to get to Australia. That boat was intercepted under a new Australian policy, which is that nobody trying to get by boat to Australia could ever be in Australia. He was put in what has now been six years of indefinite detention on an island, a kind of remote island of Papua New Guinea. And he's wrote uh, with a smuggled phone. He texted an, a book, a, a memoir to to people outside of the detention, and it won a huge prize, the Victoria Prize, $100,000 prize. Um, and it's a, just a real story about the, the life of a refugee and kind of the immiseration of people trying to make their way in the world. It's It sounds extraordinary. So check out Baruz Bouchani. That is our show for today. The GabFest is produced by Jocelyn Frank, our researchers, Bridget Dunlap. June Thomas is the managing producer of Slate Podcast. Gabe Roth is the editorial director of Slate Audio. I just want to give a shout out to new Slate Plus members. Patricia McFadden from San Francisco, California. David Del Carpio from Oregon. Caitlin Curry from Phoenix. Jonathan Bourne from Chicago. Channing Walbridge all the way from London. Ashley Niedringhaus from Copenhagen. Whoa. Richard Litvak from Aptos, California, and Bay Rouse from Montgomery. Special thanks to Danielle Hewitt, here with me, Ryan McAvoy at Yale, and Alan Peng at CBS for engineering the show. You should follow us on Twitter at SlateGabFest. Send us your chatter there. And please come to our show in Charlottesville if you can next week, next Friday, April 12th. Go to slate.com slash live for tickets and information. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. We'll talk to you in Charlottesville next week. Hello, Slate Plus. How are you? So the New York State budget passed this week, $175 billion budget. And in it is a new law that will impose a congestion tax on traffic going into Manhattan. So if you are driving into Manhattan below 60th Street, you will now, or starting in 2021, you will pay some form of tax. It will be, I think, about 12 to 14 bucks likely during rush hour for cars and maybe 25 bucks for trucks. Uh, and this money will be collected, which will be collected via Easy Pass and then cameras photographing your license plate and sending you bills, will be used uh, to fund subway repairs. So it'll, they'll, they'll use the billion dollars a year that it generates to fund a $15 billion bond that will be used to repair the New York subways and other infrastructure repairs. And hopefully it will reduce congestion in Manhattan, which is very hard to drive in, and it will, will reduce particulate pollution in Manhattan and uh, maybe reduce the amount of driving generally in New York City. So uh, this, is, this is an idea that has been tested. It's been tried to great effect in London, Singapore, I think maybe Stockholm. And uh, I think it's great. Emily, is this a good idea? Oh, my God. It's such a good idea. I was, I'm worried that now we're all going to be in total agreement. 
There must be a counter argument against this idea. I'm having trouble seeing it as someone who visits New York and rides the subways and never drives a car. But also thinking about all the ordinary New Yorkers for whom public transportation is so important and yet the subway system is in this state of great fragility and disrepair. So the notion to me of taking money from drivers and putting into public transportation in New York City just seems like a no-brainer. There's got to be some some reason why well, it's not wait, a good idea. John like, John Dickerson, you, you live north of 60th Street, right? Yeah. And you work below 60th Street. So anytime you want to drive to work or drive anywhere, you're going to be paying this tax. How does it, how does that make you feel, John? Well, um I won't be dry I mean <laughs> I'll be taking the subway to my chosen workplace or riding a bike or, you know, thinking about other... The immediate guttural reaction is there are just too many vehicles in New York. It's an impossible nightmare. And anything that uh, thins that uh, would be great. Um, I I don't... I mean, maybe I would notice it once it started happening. But but I don't think about... Because it just isn't a cost that I would um, bear that much because I would take other forms of transportation. Or just stay away from the congested areas. Are the cabbies paying this fee too? Hey, GapFest listeners, that was just a taste of what you'll get on the full Slate Plus segment. To hear the rest of our Slate Plus conversation, join Slate Plus now at slate.com slash GapFestPlus. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.